0: Well, we are living and breathing, and uh, in an age when you know uh, we can be very grateful that we have around us legends who connect with the history of this incredible music, and I'm referring, of course, to Archie Shepp. Um, I just want to acknowledge that uh, uh, Archie will be performing this evening with a great quartet that includes Lafayette Harris, Avery Sharp, and Ronald Barrage. And that's at 7 o'clock this evening. And uh, are you on tour right now? Are you... Um... No. Uh, in fact,
1: uh, just returning from Paris with my wife, and uh, we had a gig, happened, happened to have a gig here. And uh, fortunately, uh, I'm back in Portland. I, I, I haven't been here for 40 years, I believe. I think the last time I was here was... Wow. Sometime, sometime in the eighties or the late seventies yeah.
0: does it feel the same
1: yeah <laughs> i mean it's, it it looks like a small town, but it's really quite quite large yeah. it is yeah, yeah. and uh, the people are, at least in Portland have been very nice and uh, I'm very happy to be back here
0: um you know, before we jump back into anything historical, I wanted to also ask about the music tonight because here's some coffee for you. Thank you. Um, not only are you going to be playing the tenor sax, which is, of course, the instrument that you're most associated with, but you sing now as well, and you have this beautiful baritone voice. and um, oh, you thank know, you. Uh, you know, can you tell us about you know, what we can expect musically this evening?
1: Well, I never know what you can expect musically. <laughs> well, that's the nature of, I suppose, jazz, if you like. You know, there's the, always the element of surprise, hopefully a good surprise. But, uh, so uh, I, I, I'll i try to do a little, bit, a little of this and a little of that, some originals, and uh, I'm a big fan of Duke Ellington. And, Uh, my tradition really is. So I I try to uh, include uh, or to create a a diverse uh, program, sometimes using uh, poems. Uh, I I like to add the element of theater to music performance. I acquired that that habit uh, over the years uh, since I was in college. When I, I when I was started university in uh, college uh, at Goddard College in Plainfield, Vermont. Goddard is a little like Reed; it, it has a, a kind of a, back, a very a background of experimentalism. Teachers who uh, uh, who, who actually changed the name of uh, uh, education? Uh, so, to put it short, I, I, as when I went started college, I'd only thought of recordings as uh, musical events, and then uh, I uh, met a man, uh, Joe Rosenberg. Who taught theater? And, uh, uh, I started to get into to more lit- literature. Uh, one evening I was uh, in what we called the Manor Lounge, uh, to, uh, and we went there to re- recreate and play music and so on. And someone put on a recording of, of Ezra Pound, and then T.S. Eliot. Ee e. Cum- e. E. Cummings, Archibald MacLeish, and I began to realize that recordings were not were not only for music. Uh, because prior to that, I'd listened to recordings by Duke, and my father had a really nice collection. So I only thought of re- recordings as being for music, and for the first time, I realized that. Uh, literary events theater uh, uh, could, could be uh, uh, performed on, on recordings. So by the time I graduated and I made my first recording, I, I, I thought of combining uh, music with poetry and so on. So I'll do a little, I expect to do a little bit of that as well.
0: That's fantastic. You know, the, uh, the, the idea that there's this uh, consistency between uh, the way that you looked at music in the 50s when you were at Goddard uh, in Vermont, and now, you know, is that, the, you know, your view as it was forged in those years. Well, yeah, uh, and
1: then I, I, I had a play I, I wrote Done off Broadway uh, in the 60s, and uh, uh, a couple of other one-act uh, plays I did. One that was presented at Brooklyn College uh, with uh, Maurice Watkins directing. Maurice was uh, the, the guy who taught uh, uh, Larry. Uh, oh, what's his name? He's a movie actor. It in Spike Lee's play. Uh,
0: oh. Um, Lawrence Fishburne? Fishburne. Yeah. He was
1: uh, yeah. Larry's uh, coach yeah. in college. And yeah. uh, he presented my play at Brooklyn College. Uh, and I had another one-act play done at uh, Howard University you know, do, during those times. So literature has also been very... Uh, uh, important for me and uh, uh, particularly playwriting i I wrote plays after I got out of college, but I realized that somehow music was calling me, and i uh, had the chance to perform a record with Cecil Taylor in
0: nineteen sixty yeah so right. I
1: haven't stopped since. But actually, I've been playing music for about 60 years. So, I mean, I used to be able to get up, get up the stairs without having to be helped. But <laughs> it's come to that.
0: But you have this uh, incredible legacy of uh, nearly 100 recordings. Yeah, 100 fact, albums.
1: yeah quite a few recordings.
0: And he turns 83 in a few days.
1: No, not in a few days. Let's hope in a few
0: months. <laughs> oh, in a few months? Yeah, okay. In May. I got that wrong from Monette. Yeah. I apologize. No, yeah, no,
1: it's May 24th. It's, it's Is that
0: the same night, and you have a gig that night in yeah, Atlanta? Atlanta, yeah. Right, yeah. okay. Mm. Lucky Atlantans. I yeah. hope you celebrate well, I, 83. I hope
1: so, yeah. Lucky me. <laughs> 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 yeah.
0: So, again, we're going to ask you guys if you have any questions that you would like to uh, ask of Mr. Shep. We have the microphone here. Please, you know, feel free. If I see you, I'll call on you. Um, a little more sucre. Yeah. Okay. A little more sugar. Well, yes, ma'am. Take the microphone if you would, thank you. You amazed me when you mentioned Reed College. I mean, it's very well known here and to a a certain group of people, but why are you familiar with it?
1: Well, Reed was among the schools that introduced innovative techniques in education, probably influenced by William Heard Kilpatrick John Dewey, they were important uh, educators during the 30s, and uh, there, was, there were a few schools that were rather prominent in, in our conversation around at Goddard during that time, uh, Black Mountain and, and I think in, in North Carolina, Bard College, Reed uh, was among them for being uh, academic institutions that were innovating uh, that played an innovative role at the time uh, 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 who acknowledged the the, the importance of, of, of society and education being connected that we, we, as students, we should not only think of, of getting an education but combining an education with uh, uh, playing a more socially dy- dynamic uh, uh, role uh, as well as being an outstanding uh, uh, having an outstanding uh, academic reputation for teachers that were not only innovative but uh, creative. Uh, so I, anyway, I knew about Reed, Black Mountain, Bard, to some degree, Bennington College. Uh, they were the schools that were innovative, from the, during, especially during the 30s, because, uh, uh, well, the 30s were, which followed the 20s, you might say so the, the The era of the Depression, uh Economically, and uh, some schools, many uh, didn't see the role of education as being uh, 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 engaged with changing society, making it uh, but it was important and uh, anyway, I know about Reed College <laughs> <laughs>
0: There you go. So I promised you, you know, that I I would uh, bring up some of the discoveries that uh, have happened when I've been uh, talking with uh, uh, Mr. Shep, and one of them is that uh, Archie's experience when he first was breaking into music in his hometown of Philly, and Philadelphia being this incredibly fertile music scene, uh, included some very familiar names in jazz, you know, history. That um, uh, include like Lee Morgan, etc. That you grew up with. Yeah, Bobby Timmons, uh, Bill Barron. Bobby Timmons. That was
1: before his brother became famous, Kenny. Uh,
0: before Kenny Barron, yeah, and there's Bill Barron. All the money,
1: yeah, right. And uh, the guy I, I studied with, I'm trying to think his name, Tony Mitchell. They were all associated with, with John Coltrane and. Uh, they were all contemporaries. And, uh, so they were
0: on the scene and you were they coming They were on up. the scene, yeah. Oh, yeah.
1: And, uh, I, I learned a, a lot from from that ambience. Uh, there were some really fine musicians uh, around me at the time. And this was true all over the United States. I mean, out in California, there were people like Eric Dolphy and... Youssef the chief in, in Detroit. Uh, so uh, uh, it was not only the, the the people who were around me in Philadelphia, but but people. Uh, the, the black music tradition extended uh, uh, throughout the United States: uh, Washington, Cleveland, Philadelphia. San Francisco. I suppose you had guys that were right around here in Portland who may or may not be so well known, like uh, Buck Washington, uh, who was a really fine saxophone player from Washington, but really never gained much of a reputation except among other musicians. so the the thing is that the the uh, black tradition uh, in music is, is uh, uh, you might say universal. You know, guys like Lester Young, who uh, come from Mississippi, but he was born in Mississippi, but played as far away as Oklahoma and Minnesota. And, uh, so uh, it's a tradition that that was. Uh, a continuum. John Lewis uh, uh, was raised in uh, New Mexico, I believe. Right. Yeah. And uh, when you think about it, that the, the Negro spiritual, that black music was was being played everywhere in Balt- Baltimore. The, they sang singing spirituals, and just like they did down in Mississippi and Florida.
0: It's more specifically to your time period is the idea that, um, uh, you know, this we're talking about the period right after bebop settles in, but there is also this kind of jump blues and R&B happening at the same time, and you have this divide starting to happen between kind of dance music that's well-paying gigs yeah. and you know the the more artistic more um focused on jazz that's happening too, and you had many of your contemporaries in Philadelphia were kind of balancing on both sides of the line like Lee Morgan et cetera and I remember you meet, you you telling me about how they they looked upon you at the very beginning
1: yeah, yeah. um i met Lee and they, they used to have jam sessions uh, uh, for, for young kids in Philadelphia because at the time um, you had to be 21 to get into a bar so uh, young people couldn't enjoy didn't have the privileges that uh, older people did and there was a guy who named Tom Roberts who was a radio announcer who set up this uh, activity for young people and uh, even uh, the invite guy, the, the big names who were playing in town on Friday afternoons, the kids could go down and hear the uh, the big professionals Ben Webster, Max, Art Blakey, guys like that. And uh, after that, they would have the young kids perform. And uh, Lee was a guy. Lee Morgan was. Frequently there, and he performed after the uh, before the professionals or after they had played, and uh, I was very impressed by his 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 technique, his swing, and so on. Uh,
0: Were you anywhere near that level at that point, or were you totally intimidated?
1: Yeah, totally. (laughs) Even now, sometimes you know, I I listen to some of the guys that. I really admired and Lee was a little younger than I am but I suppose he he was kind of a genius he uh, used to call all the guys he liked and say he's a genius man he's a genius but actually he was a genius he was only 15 or 16 and playing then with professionals like John Coltrane Clarence Sharp and guys around so I asked him if he would help me with to learn to play chord changes. On a, on a horn, it's quite a bit different from a piano because on a piano you can see the chords, but on a horn you can't see the chords. You have to p- put them together melodically. And uh, so I got, he, he, he consented to uh, very graciously uh, to let me uh, come to his home and uh, we, we had a little jam session. Well, th- at that time, I only heard Stan Getz, because they didn't play many African Americans on the radio on the main stations. They did; you could hear Fats P- Waller, or uh, maybe Jim- Jimmy Lunsford, uh, the bands, and so on. Fats uh, was, of course, quite quite a uh, he was he was well known there. They did play him from time to time, uh, but uh, Stan Getz was probably the only jazz man that you would hear from time to time, maybe Lee Konitz uh, from time to time, but um, I had heard Stan's version of How High the Moon, and that was what I had sort of learned. and. Try, trying to get his sounds. And the, but, so they asked, he asked me to play something for him. And when, I, when he did that, I, of course, I, I reached for my version of, Stan's version of How High the Moon. And uh, I noticed that he, he had a guy he played with frequently, Kenny Rogers. They, they were sort of snickering on the side I, didn't think, I don't think they were very impressed by my imitation of Stan Getz. And uh and them, well, they didn't like Stan Getz that much either, so... <laughs> so they might have asked me to play another song, and uh, I think it was looking pretty hopeless. And, uh, and uh, finally, he, he said, well, let's play the blues. Well, my father, uh, that's how I got into music, played the banjo. And my first instrument had actually been the banjo. And and the blues, I not uh, not only knew what the chords were, but I could sing the blues. Uh, I knew the blues from inside. This
0: is from being down in Florida?
1: Born in Florida, yeah. Yeah. And uh, that's the the music of the people there. And so uh, I took the first course. And uh, when we we were finished, he he seemed to be rather impressed. And he said, man, don't ever change. And that's how I got to meet Lee. And frequently after that, when he had blues gigs, only the blues, he would call me. (laughs) to play because uh, it's, it's something I had a feeling for and I, I knew, as I say, I, I, uh, I had not only learned the chords to the blues, but I could sing the blues, which, which means that I really felt them from the inside. And, uh, I, could, I could sing the St. Louis blues. I hate to see that evening sun go down. It was something that was endemic, uh, intrinsic.
0: Thank you for sharing that story. Uh-huh. Auditioning for a fifteen-year-old Lee Morgan. Yeah.
1: <laughs> he, he was Lee. Was, yeah, he was a young kid. You know, you wouldn't believe it. But uh, he, and he played with all the, the, the big names around town. Uh, I remember when he was hired by Dizzy Gillespie. We were uh, we got uh, we were in a bar they called Peps Bar at Jordan South in Philly, and uh, the only reason we were able to get in was because all the bar the barkeepers they knew him, even though he was under twenty one, he would frequently be able to get into places where none of the other kids could get into because. uh, he performed, he was, he was a professional leader. Was, was
0: it Peps where Freddie Freeloader was the bartender, or was it Showboat?
1: Well, they were only a block apart. Oh, uh, okay. I don't know, it could have been either one okay. Showboat's at Broad and Locust, uh, and Peps at Broad South. And Freddie could have been either, had either one of them, maybe both. <laughs>
0: Yeah. This is the the gentleman who uh, the the famous track from Kind of Blue is named after. a uh, bartender in Freddy Philly, Freddie Freeloader. Yeah. Freddie Freeloader.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Those are incredible uh, stories. You know, a
1: story about him when I, when I met Freddie. Uh, I, I, I I had seen him and I said, uh, Freddie Freeloader. And he looked at me and said, no, I said, Freddie the freeloader. <laughs> he said, no, 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 the. <laughs> Freddie free, Freddy freeloader. <laughs> yeah.
0: Being corrected by Freddie. Yeah, Freddie yeah, yeah. 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 Tibbert, I think was yeah. his uh, real T- name. Tolbert. Tolbert, well, okay.
1: His, his name is Tolbert, but uh, he seemed to like the French pronunciation Freddie Tolbert <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: Again we have the microphone feel free uh, Thank you Mr. Chef for coming uh, you, I, I wanted to ask you a question about Attica Blues um, it's one of my favorite albums of yours did you, because of the writings that you've done in the past and sometimes you were saying in the beginning here that you do singing and you also read from your plays, did you kind of set up Attica Blues as a play?
1: Well, you know, it's interesting. I I suppose even though I might not have done that consciously, um, I saw saw all my recordings as uh, somehow having some theatrical Uh, connection Uh, uh, so it it might have been that I I saw not only thought of Attica Blues as a piece of music but at that time there were were a lot of uh, 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 terrible things going on in the prisons probably still are but uh, it was around the time of the assassination of George Jackson and uh, the, the Attica prison uprising. So I, in a way, I suppose I, I put all that together uh, as probably being representative of the black community itself and the enormous tragedies that we suffered as far as housing, education, violence uh, so I, I, I probably had about 20 musicians uh, on my recording and partly it was because uh, that 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 recording represented the, the community to me and uh, the musicians had had uh, other uh, Another role to play, as far as I was concerned, that uh, they they represented not only people who played instruments, but they, they they were actually born out of the situation that we were facing uh, that the uh, criminality, violence. Uh, was being expressed through their instruments, love. Uh, so, yeah, it might have had a connection in, 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 my, in my, thought, in my, if not in my conscious thoughts, that's the way it turned out. Yeah.
0: Thank you for the question. Sir?
1: I did go to Reed College.
0: Oh, <laughs> but like you, I'm
1: glad glad to meet you. Like you, i never, like be, you, never, I'd, never I'd met rather, a read man, but uh, <laughs> I'd rather or a woman. Yeah. I'd rather not discuss it further. Yeah.
0: <laughs> uh, but you do have a question. Uh, yeah, one thing I wanted to ask if you could comment on the film. I believe it was called Imagine the Sound from a number of years ago.
1: And <laughs> excuse me.
0: Uh, I heard you perform here
1: almost 40 years ago at Portland Center for the Visual Oh, you were there, yeah. And I was wondering if you
0: have been in Portland since then.
1: No, I I haven't been. I haven't been back.
0: So this is a reunion. Yeah. You you could say that, Yeah. yeah.
1: Anyhow, I was very intrigued by that film. And if you had any thoughts to share about that. Well, I think as I remember it was made by a guy named Ron Mann. And uh, I I wrote a piece for the pianist, Elmo Hope. Um, And after that, I I wrote another piece for Elmo, which I'll probably perform this evening. It's called Hope Two, because it was the second composition that I wrote for Elmo. The one that the film you're referring to contains the first composition I wrote for Elmo Hope. But uh, I don't don't have many uh, memories of the recording, uh, except to know that, uh, as I remember, we did it in in Canada. Use the mic. Cecil Taylor is uh, performed as well. Yeah. You. Okay. Hey, girl, what you doing here? <laughs> the most incredible thing that happened in my life was meeting this man, a really hip dope dealer, like turned me on to Archie Shep. I walked up there on the stage at the new morning and I was scared shitless. <laughs> he said, "Well, baby, what do you want to sing? And I said, Well, Misty the key of B flat. I was so terrified. I am so thankful for all the opportunities you have offered, not just me, but all different types of artists. You just blessed me. I will never, ever forget you. Please. Thank you.
0: Thank you for sharing that. That lady
1: is Annette Lohman, who lives here in uh, Oregon. Uh, she was. Uh, she's a vocal, quite a fine vocalist, and uh, we met oh maybe forty years ago or so. How many? How many? I don't. I don't want to. <laughs> okay,
0: not forty. Twenty-three. 20, excuse me. <laughs> but I'm going to have to ask you guys to identify yourselves. So you, you know, if you're going to come up with stories like that, we want to know who you are. Mm-hmm. So from now on, if you come to the microphone, first tell us who you are. And then uh, oh, proceed. I'm done. Hey, Don.
1: Uh, this is not exactly a jazz question, but it's certainly a musical question. Years ago, I heard your tribute to Martin Luther King. Uh, that's the work that uh, Malcolm Goldstein was uh, on the violin. Oh uh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you seen Malcolm? I, uh, it was so. It came out of. That era that you're talking about with all of those terrible things. I was so moved by it, I've tried years and years to find a copy of it. My question is, did you ever record that or did you play it often? No, uh, uh, we didn't play it often. It was inspired by my relationship with Malcolm goldstein and uh, uh, we we were quite good friends at the time and uh, he was socially and committed and, and uh, as were many of my friends, he was a musical activist and uh, unfortunately we we didn't get to record it, but we did uh, Performed the piece from time to time. It was completely improvised, so uh, it was always different each time we did it.
0: Thanks for the question. Hi, my name's Steven. Um, you did a wonderful album, which everyone should
1: have at least four copies of. <laughs> four for Coltrane. And you did a very different version of Naima than the original recording. There were, in fact, counter lines, there were um, numerous... Yeah, that uh, was the arrangement by Roswell Rudd. Wonderful arrangement, Roswell Rudd, yeah. Yeah. But I just thought, was that something that uh, have you as the previous question, do, you do it again? Is it something that you incorporate if you ever do when you re, uh, repeat that? Do you think of those, that particular arrangement? Well, I, I have recorded and have performed <coughs> Naima on several occasions, but uh, never exactly like the, the arrangement on that recording for portraying. Because it was a written arrangement, and uh, it has several different movements, uh, uh, canon uh, uh, arrangements uh, that uh, that would make it difficult for me just to perform it as it is done on that recording, because I don't—I no longer have the music. And even then, uh, I I try to use, uh, try not to use written music during my performances. I try to make it as much like the old New Orleans days as possible. That is completely uh, improvised, uh, non-academic.
0: And such a great album for for Train.
1: Yeah. the, uh, I did that for uh, Impulse Records.
0: That was your very first album that was for my Impulse. My
1: first album for them, yeah, and uh, it was quite interesting because uh, I had been calling them, uh, trying to get a recording date for quite a while, and uh, each time I called the the A and R man. Uh, who, the guy who actually managed all the records of John Coltrane, uh, up to a certain point, Bob. Thiel. Bob Thiel, Yeah, he, uh, he had a secretary, uh, Lillian, and she would always say, uh, "Well, Bob's not here; he's gone for the day, or he, he just he's out for lunch." So uh, finally, I, finally, I got the the courage to. Asked John Coltrane, who who, who was uh, a mentor to me and remains a person that I regard very highly. I, I asked him one night at the, he was performing at the uh, Half Note down on Spring Street. On the intermission, I I said, "Well, John, would you would you talk to Bob Thiel for me? Because every time I call, he's either gone for the day or out after lunch. <laughs> so he, he, he looked at me, uh, gave me another intense look, and he said, you know, a lot of people think I'm easy. And they did. They took advantage of John, of his kindness and uh, his accessibility. And so I, I reassured him, uh, John, I'm, I'm not trying to take advantage of you. Uh, it's just that I, I've got four kids, and <laughs> I need some help. And so he said, uh, well, I'll see what I can do. And the next day I, I called in post. For Bob. Lillian said to me, uh, well, he's uh, going He's going to, going to lunch and that was uh, 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 but then she followed it up with he'll be back <laughs> <laughs> and, and he's expecting your call so that's how I got to do that recording uh, for Patrain, train uh, and uh, it turned out to be pretty good I, when, I, when I arrived at the studio to do the recording it was at Rudy Van Gelder's uh, Rudy had done a lot of great Recordings of Miles and JJ Johnson for Blue Note Records back in the day. He was an optometrist, and he did all the recordings at that point in his basement. But by the time I got the chance to record for him, he had built a a beautiful studio out in I think Englewood. Englewood Cliffs. Englewood Cliffs, New Jersey. It's like a. I I
0: live about twenty minutes away from where (laughs) it still is, so. Yeah, and, and they,
1: it it's, it's, it has the uh, air of a cathedral, which's been done in beautiful teak wood, and uh, uh, no nobody can touch Rudy's microphones. He, he, at least at that point, he he, uh, he he himself only touched them with gloves. He had all plastic gloves, and uh, he, it was a monument to music. Uh, and uh, Bob was standing way down. The, it's a, a large place with, the, with high ceilings. And Bob was smoking his pipe. He didn't even turn around to look at me because he didn't like uh, what they called free jazz at all. He only did that because of John Coltrane. And uh, he was puffing his pipe. I could see puffs of p- pipe smoke blowing. Up. But he didn't turn to even he didn't turn around to look at me, even. And so we did the first recording, first take, and then uh, by the time we did the second, he said, hey, this stuff is great. <laughs> uh, he said, he said uh, I'm gonna call Coltrane and ask him to come down. And uh, John lived out on Long Island, it's quite a ways, and it was about 11 o'clock in the evening. So he called John and he said, hey, John, this stuff is great, you know, and uh, I want you to come out and uh, I, eventually we took some photo, uh, photo ops, uh, pictures, that one of them, which was used on the album. And if you notice, care, look carefully, you'll see that John doesn't have on any socks. <laughs> I don't know, but because some people say he didn't wear socks much anyway uh because uh, he had the same problems with his feet that I had, and uh, probably a little worse and uh, uh in fact he he, he he commented once when I asked him about his feet, he said even the air hurts <laughs> so so he might not have had on any socks because he did. He's had problems with his feet.
0: Four for Train, everyone. Still a great wow. album. Yeah. yeah. Hello, my name is. Um, I think we have time for one more question because we're going to have to uh, allow Mr. Shep to get ready to do sound check and you know prepare for the seven o'clock concert tonight at Newmark. Uh, Roberto,
1: right? Roberto Lovato. Um, I believe you played um, Keystone Quarter in the 70s? Yeah, yeah. Markins, I was there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. All right. Uh, we've been trying to get you to come to PDX Jazz uh, for several years. What made you decide to come this year? Well, I, I suppose I got another agent <laughs> It might have had something to do with I know. it. Yeah. yeah.
0: Anyway, uh, Usually, the answers on on business stuff is on that level. <laughs> oh, thank
1: you for thank you Roberto, thank you. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
0: So um, I'm, I'm going to end with one, one last thing here. Uh, there's this incredible documentary coming out on Miles Davis next Tuesday on PBS called "Birth of the Cool," and uh, Archie, you're in it, sharing one story about. Uh, oh, yeah. You know, you, there was this moment about Archie's generosity in sharing the stage with other performers, and this is another moment where you a- you were asked to generously. You yeah. know, uh, 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 re- or you requested of Miles to be generous to allow you to perform, but in the documentary, there's only part one of the story, and I'm wondering if you can complete that for us and and uh, kind of put the cap on the uh, discussion today.
1: Well, um, I I had I knew Tony uh, um, Tony Williams. Tony Williams is is a drummer. Uh, because we had uh, replaced, uh, we did a show called The Connection. That was when I was with Cecil Taylor, and we, we were replacing the Jackie McLean, Freddie Red uh, ensemble. And, and there they, was a
0: theater piece too. It was a
1: theater piece by Jack Gilbert. And uh, when they they came back, they they hired a new drummer. Uh, Tony Williams uh, and uh, later on Tony uh, was hired by Miles Davis uh, so this night uh, I came down to the uh, village of Anyard where Miles was performing because by that time Tony had left Jackie McLean's ensemble and he was with Miles Davis in fact he'd acquired quite a reputation by that time as one of the important drummers on the scene and when I came in uh, to the club I, I usually carried my horn with me at that time and uh, I was uh, uh, hoping uh, by chance that maybe I could sit in with the Miles although probably I wasn't ready musically to to, uh, to uh, to do what I would, would probably have done. But uh, uh, as soon as I got in the door, Tony, he recognized me from the time that we, we had done the show at uh, the Living Theater. and uh, He said, Archie, check your horn out, man. Come on and play some with us. So I said, well, Tony, I don't know. Miles may not be <laughs> open to the idea. Uh, and uh he said, "Oh no, no, don't worry uh you, you hear stories, but he's a, he's a nice guy you' gonna
0: a sweetheart yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so uh I allowed myself uh, to be talked into this and uh I suppose it was partly because I, I was hoping that I, I could he would allow me to sit in and uh so I approached him. Uh, very very delicately, because he was surrounded by a coterie of admirers and people, he was, and he was deep in conversation with some people, and uh, I took the liberty to interrupt, or I dared to interrupt his conversation, and I said, uh, uh, Mr. Davis, uh, my name is Archie Shep, and immediately he said, Archie! <laughs> <laughs> And uh, so I said, Archie Shep. And so he said, uh, "Fuck you." <laughs> <laughs> and he, he went on. And he, Miles is Jackie McLean's uh, mentioned in a book called Four Lines in the Bebop Bebop Business. He says uh, Miles could really cuss. And he must have called me everything but a child of God, if not. And so, at a certain point, I, I, I was—I had two children. And then I was married. I was a young man, but I was, and I had respected him. But, but I felt that he was totally disrespecting me. So, at a certain point, I responded to him in kind. And. Uh, so I says, "Fuck you! Who the fuck are you?" <laughs> and we get, we got into this terrible argument, which which went it went on for quite some time. We the his dressing room. Well, the Vanguard didn't really have a dressing room. They had a little place in the kitchen, but we we were both busily engaged in the repartee and. Uh, at, at a, so he uh, his, one of his sons was there Was was, was a boxer and Miles was, was a boxing enthusiast so he says to me uh,
0: my son will kick your ass
1: <laughs> so I, I said to him uh, I'll kick your ass on the bandstand that's where the music is made and, and so but he, at that at that point, he, he took on another attitude altogether. It was rather like the the old west, you know. He, he said, "Take your horn out, motherfucker! <laughs> take take your horn out, motherfucker!" He says to me, and uh, so that's how I got to sit in with the Miles Davis. <laughs> <laughs> So the first, the first tune he played was uh, four, buta buta da and uh, when I took my solo, I was both intimidated and angry. So I played intimidation and anger. It had nothing to do with the song. And, uh, so he shook his horn after the finger. And the next one was Around midnight in which I did more or less the same thing. I played totally away from and uh, the third was Oleo. Ba ba dee da and uh, although I had heard I, I even learned John's solo on the that rendition. Uh, no, I hadn't because it was before. Well, I had because there was Wayne Shorter on tenor and uh, Herbie and uh, Ron uh, Carter and uh, Tony Williams. And uh, about the middle of the song, he shook his horn one more time and he walked off the bandstand. And, uh, shortly after my solo and uh, a little later Herbie got up from the piano and he walked off and uh, then Wayne followed Herbie so that just left me me with uh, Ron Carter and uh, uh, Tony and I I didn't use the piano much anyway so I I didn't really miss it when the piano left (laughs) And uh, we went on for about another half hour, <laughs> uh, just just the bass, uh, drums, and, and tenor, and then uh, all of a sudden I, I heard a piano, and it was Hervey, he had come back. And then after that, I heard a tenor saxophone play, and it was Wayne; he had come back. And the story goes that. Miles didn't come back for the rest of the week, <laughs> and after that, he began to play some of the originals of Herbie and uh, because uh, and and Wayne were both fine composers, but he never played their music until that point, and uh, because prior to that, he, I'd heard him several times with uh, Cannonball and. Uh, uh, train and uh, uh, Red Garland and like that uh, and he played the same repertoire Around Midnight, for uh, All of You. Those were the things that he played at the time and it wasn't until he got uh, that night uh, as I understand that he began to listen and to use uh, works, original works written by his own side, I and, mean, up to that time, he'd played mostly uh, standards and uh, ballads.
0: that's incredible that's That's a triumphant uh, uh, occasion there and you know I, th- I think you won the showdown <laughs> Well, I don't know
1: if I won it,
0: but I was in it definitely. <laughs> And in the documentary, I'm not no spoilers here, but you'll see that that, that the whole story is kind of truncated, and it ends with well, "fuck I, you." I, I think, <laughs> uh, yeah, that,
1: uh, I think that's part, partly because uh, he knew, and, and I still say that Miles was one of was an idol to me, a, a man who, despite how he felt about me, I always felt that he was one of the, the great people. Musically speaking, in the African American tradition, and uh, I told him that uh, it was—it it embarrassed me to have to engage him on that level, because I look at him more as a, as, a, as a, an artist, a, a, a genius, uh, and there are other ways to tell people that you, they can't perform, other than to say "fuck you." <laughs> <Quite> <laughs> so, so. Um,
0: Ladies and gentlemen, Archie Shep Don't forget, 7 o'clock tonight at Newmark Theatre
1: Thank you Real quick, everybody, uh, please do stick around. We have the John Gross Quartet coming on at 5 o'clock right here on this stage. So uh, stick around and enjoy some more jazz. Thank you. Thank you very much.